Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the forthcoming novel Missionaries, our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media, me, the knocker-off of Tall Hats, Jake Siegel, and our special guest for this installment, Ian Corbin, a fine writer at publications uh, like the Washington Examiner and First Things and others he'll tell you about, and a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Medical School where he is co-director of the Human Network Initiative. Glad to have you here, Ian. Thanks, guys. I, I, I feel a you fine want to tell writer? us anything more? You're, 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 I know I gave you sort of. You're underselling him. He's a superb writer. Oh my god, <laughs> he is a superb. I mean, you don't want to put you all guys, that into you the... guys are great podcasters and very handsome men as well. <laughs> you know that? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Great taste in music. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, today we will be discussing Joseph Conrad's preface to a, well, a book whose title is <sighs> contains a racial slur, we'll put it that way, uh, The Blank of the Narcissus, um, which is um, sort of ironically like it was, it was published in the United States under the title The Children of the Sea. Uh, so that was actually in an odd way like the less racist title because the um, Americans did not, American publishers did not think that anyone in America would want to read a book centered around a black man. Um, uh, there's a lot to be said on Conrad and race. Uh, Chini Machebe said a bunch. That's probably a podcast for another day, I think, um, because he's one of these writers who's um, sort of deeply racist and also very interesting on race at the same time. Uh, but the reason we want to talk about the preface, it is, it's Conrad's manifesto of his own sort of purpose in art, uh, sort of deeply influential, uh, and we're to a lot of, a lot of writers, um, Flannery O'Connor, uh, mentions it, uh, Saul Bellow mentions it as well, actually extensively, and we are going to be pairing Conrad's preface with, uh, a Saul Bellow short story called Mosby's Memoirs. Um, and Ian, you picked these. So do you want to talk a little bit about why uh, you you wanted to do the preface uh, alongside Bellow? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, one pretty straightforward reason is that I discovered the preface only through Saul Bellow. Um, so he confesses in his Nobel acceptance speech that um, basically, you know, come to, to full ripe middle or old age, uh, he, he unabashedly now um, understands his craft the way that Conrad explains it in the preface. Um, and he says that he was sort of asha not ashamed of it, but kind of um, had mixed feelings and kind of tried to keep it a little bit under wraps because it is this big sort of high modern rhapsodic romantic understanding of what an artist is up to. Um, and then Bello says, but now at this point, you know, like this is just frankly what I'm doing. Um, 
so um yeah the, the, I love it's, it's the preface it's, yeah it's great in the in the nobel lecture he said you know says you know conrad has these really noble sounding words right that that don't fly in the 20th century big words right. had to be you know authors like hemingway had told us to reject these words because big words right. had to be measured against the frozen corpses of young men paving the trenches right after they've mm-hmm. been sent to die on behalf of big words so i told myself that conrad's rhetoric must be resisted Resisted, not rejected, for I never thought him mistaken. He spoke directly to me. The feeling individual appeared weak. He felt only his own weakness. But if he accepted his weakness and his separateness and descended into himself, intensifying his loneliness, he discovered his solidarity with other isolated creatures. What's that from? Bellows Bellows Nobel Lecture, yeah. What did he win the Nobel for? Chemistry. Good looks. Chemistry, right. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, literature. Oh, okay, literature. The right. writer. That's a writer, Jake. About that, Bella. No, I thought you were talking about the chemist. <laughs> His brother. No, that's, no, no, no. That's, that's not Saul. That's, uh, that's Paul. So Conrad's preface has very little to do with the story, actually. Um, yeah. Except insofar as it's considered, I think his first great story sort of what launched him as a real literary man, as a opposed to a novelist of adventures and of sea tales. I think this is what earned him some distinction in the, if not the European literary scene, then certainly the British, uh, among the, the British reading public. And it is... Uh, Ian described it wonderfully, I think you said, rhapsodic and high modernist and rhapsodic, not high modern, modernist and rhapsodic, but it's certainly, it's that, uh, it is, it's that at at its best, we can, we'll get into what it is at its worst uh, (laughs) in a bit, but uh, who wants to take a crack at at sort of the the structure and the scope of the thing? Well, maybe... Maybe we should lay a little bit of sort of groundwork for where this is coming from, right? So sure. if <laughs> you think of um, the kind of romanticism, right, which you know emerges in response to the Enlightenment, to, to you know, Locke and Newton and mechanistic models of the mind, right, to... Uh, sort of social science, it starts analyzing man as an object of sort of inquiry, right? Scientific inquiry to utilitarianism. Suddenly you start to need a justification for art, right? And um, and Conrad has a very sort of uh, romantic uh, temperament in some ways. And there are similarities to some of the justifications that the, the romantics sort of put forth. So Wordsworth <coughs> argues... In spite of difference of soil and climate, of language and manners, of laws and customs, in spite of things silently gone out of mind and things violently destroyed, the poet binds together passion and knowledge, the vast empire of human society as it is spread over the whole earth and over all of time, right? So it's part of this sort of assertion of the role of art um, as this sort of uni- – there's a kind of unifying human – um, essence, right, or soul, or or whatever that you you can access through 
can only be accessed through non-scientific things, right? Another sort of model in terms of a direction art can go is some is, an, is sort of realism and naturalism, right? So, and this is, would be a sort of later movement that you know, of you know writers like Stephen Crane or um, um, Frank Norris, right? Where you're sort of assuming that man is a a mechanistic creature, right? Responsive to social pressures that, uh, you know, sort of determine him. And, um, and, uh, and Conrad is, is sort of deeply influenced by these things. He has this very keen understanding of the way in which, you know, human beings are far more propped up by the sort of opinions and feelings of crowds. Um, he, you know, in his method and how he writes, right. You, you, you get a real depth of all of these, um, influences or what happens when those influences are not there. Um, and yet he sort of wants to assert a sort of unique value of art nonetheless. And I think that, um, you know, sort of that plus the, the kind of aesthetic movement in art, people like Flaubert, Maupassant, kind of art for art's sake that he directly references um, and this sort of intense kind of craftsman's approach to, to the creation of art are all kind of things swirling around the air that he's trying to think about as he's trying to determine how he's going to write and what he's writing for, what the purpose of writing in the modern age is after all of these kind of assaults on what had previously been, been not only you know what, what, what art had been considered to be, but what human beings had been considered to be. To round out that background, I mean, that's, you know, a, a good full description of what he was surrounded by and the in, intellectual and artistic uh, firmament. But he'd also spent something like uh, almost two decades at sea right. in uh, years not long before he composed this. So he'd only come back to land, I think, three or four years prior to this, after a long career at sea in various uh, merchant navies. And that sense of uh, the relationship between the individual and the crowd and what forces form a man in the wild, in nature, against the elements, against himself. Yeah. You know, you, and, and also the, the you outsider. You get a particular mm-hmm. view on that, I think, yeah. as a, a sailor. Because because Conrad was, you know, he was a Pole living in England. You know, he sort of, um, Ian Watt, uh, as literary critic in the 60s or 70s, I forget, uh, said there's, there's much to support the view that the most powerful motive in Conrad's writing in general was for an art that would make real the yearning of the orphan, the exile, and the skeptic for some special kind of human brotherhood. And I think that sort of sense of outsiderness is really important. If you look at a story of his, like Amy Foster, right, where there's like a sort of gibbering, incoherent pole um, who sort of in his illness ceases to seem human to the Englishman around him. It was something I think that he felt very keenly. Hmm. So shall we talk directly about the preface then? Jake, do you want to just read the first two sentences? Of the preface. Ian, you go ahead. You got ah, it right in front of you. I've got it here. A work that aspires, however humbly, to the condition of art should carry its justification in every line. And art itself may be defined as a single-minded attempt to render the highest kind of justice to the visible universe 
by bringing to light the truth manifold and one underlying its every aspect. I'll, I'll just read one more. It is an attempt to find in its forms, in its colors, in its light, in its shadows, in the aspects of matter and in the facts of life, what of each is fundamental, what is enduring and essential, their one illuminating and convincing quality, the very truth of their existence. It's a lot. It is a lot. Maybe a clause too many, you might say. Uh, but the <laughs> first he was on a roll. Line, he was on a roll. <laughs> I, I think, look, I love Conrad's novels, but um, they all, even the best of them, they contain uh, filler. You know, I, I think he was he was somebody who could over-embellish. He was somebody who could write pages and pages of filler in some of the novels, but like under Western eyes, for instance, but was also a tremendous novelist and capable of arresting power and unforgettable uh, images and characters. That so, first so line there you're saying is that phenomenal. It's amazing. But what you're saying is then that Conrad's novels do not actually carry their justification in every line. <laughs> Uh, no, no, exa that's exactly right. They, not right. only do they not carry their justification in every line, they seem fundamentally uninterested in their justification for long passages, though maybe that's too harsh. And, they're, and it's not that they're uninterested. They're just failing to live up to that, to be fair, rather high standard. You know? But it's funny because in, in this manifesto, in this preface, in which he is making this absolutist demand of art that every line be uh that every line be could be held up as enough to justify the whole endeavor that every line be worthy of being judged ultimately by you know yeah in this thing it's like you know it's it's uh, to me it, it's there's just often like a clause to I mean, it's essential. It's fundamental. It needs to show the light to the world. It's, you know, I could, uh, I, I get the, I get the spirit of it and I, I'm moved by the spirit of it, but then I'm also at times a little impatient with the spirit of it. Right. So he has that, it's a phenomenal opening line. Um, that sort of really kind of rigorous, um, you know, vocation uh, idea of the profession. And then he sort of argues that uh, he compares art to the sort of work that's done by scientists or, or philosophers, right? Um, and he argues that, you know, that basically they're all, they're all truth seekers, right? Though in different ways. And though they might be, you know, sort of less rigorous than the scientist, or less it's sort of easy to justify moment by moment, the, um, he gives a higher role to art, right? And he says, the changing wisdom of successive generations discards ideas, questions facts, demolishes theories. But the artist appeals to that part of our being which is not dependent on wisdom, to that in us, in us which is a gift and not an acquisition, and therefore more permanently enduring. He speaks to our capacity for delight and wonder, to the sense of mystery surrounding our lives, to our sense of pity 
and beauty and pain to the latent feeling of fellowship with all creation, and to the subtle but invincible conviction of solidarity that knits together the loneliness of innumerable hearts, to the solidarity in dreams, in joy, in sorrow, in aspirations, in illusions, in hope, in fear, which binds men to each other, which binds together all humanity, the dead to the living, and the living to the unborn. Uh, <laughs> I'm a sucker, guys. <laughs> I'm helpless. Yeah, I'm like absolutely Conrad. Like, take my, take my money. Um, <laughs> like it seems so. You, because you find it the sentiment moving, or so moving. You find it true. So I find moving it moving. So true. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe I have to examine it further to see whether I would sort of pronounce it perfectly accurate and maybe we'll we'll talk through that uh, in the next little bit but certainly like that appeals to my instinct and to uh why i kind of feel this this visceral personal love for a lot of the writers that i i care about mm -hmm. right like i i don't i don't like sit back and kind of think dostoevsky you know was an impressive prose stylist like maybe maybe i guess he probably wasn't anyway but uh but i i love him and and so i Conrad, his description of what an artist is up to kind of resonates with my my kind of sentimental attachment to, to certain I writers. can't imagine Dostoevsky ever having written that. I, I, I You know, by the way, Conrad claimed Wrong. that he never read Dostoevsky, hmm. if you can believe it. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> That's um, I can't hmm. imagine Dostoevsky having written that, but I, I'm, I'm like... Listen, I don't want to be uh, the killjoy here, and uh, I'm not opposed to solidarity between men's hearts and yeah, like the yeah. brotherhood of all dreams and so forth. But uh, nor, nor nor do I want to be. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's uh, maybe I'm growing cynical in my middle to old age, but I feel that he's. He's laying it on a bit thick. It feels like a sales job to me. <laughs> I, Is that, does art need to do that? Is that art needs to, to unify I, all I, men's I, hearts across I mean, all time and yes. alive? That's what art needs <laughs> yeah, to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let's back up because actually Dostoevsky would love this, I think. Um, if you think of uh, Father Zosima and that sort of – selfless um escasis that sort of giving of self that that ends up um kind of tearing us open to like just how perfectly wondrous the world is and how we're living in paradise and how we're guilty before everyone and and we should give our lives uh, to to love and serve everyone um yeah, Dostoevsky is not more sober than this, I don't think. No, I, I think of course that not. You're I think right. he's not more sober. Uh, and I think that he, that, think that same idea of that, you know, you you have these, you know, Dostoevsky. You, know, you just think about, you know, the Grand Inquisitor, right? And and um, uh, the the sort of incredible edifices of rationalistic thought, right? Yeah that create sort of in this methodical and powerful and beautiful way a rationale for caging the human, right? Because what the Grand Inquisitor is essentially saying is, you know, Christian morality is too much for human beings. This, this thing, this is created in God's image. What kind of God, right? And 
Let's take humans where they are and build a society according to what they need, not what the, you know, the best need, but what, what, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the average human needs, right? right? And it's this sort of lowest common denominator approach that like, if you're, you know, if you take the Grand Inquisitor seriously, um, uh, and there's one, there's a weird thing sort of reading the Grand Inquisitor as a Catholic, by the way, because it's kind of like a literary genius wrote a chick tract. Um, well, you know, he was almost as uh, anti-Catholic as he was anti-Jewish. Yeah. Yeah, he was not the, fond of the Catholics. No, not especially not the Jesuits. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sort of, here's the road, roadmap to totalitarianism, right? Like, yeah. let's look at humans honestly and uh, see how we can control them, right? Um, and that's what they really want. And, you know, Conrad says, no, there are these things happening at a lower level, right, than these theories. And, they, and, and we get them in our sense of pity and beauty and pain and, and, and love and joy, right, um, which do, you know, sort of bind together all humanity, right? Dostoevsky writes The Grand Inquisitor assuming that everyone will be convinced by Ivan's ar- argument, but that they will stand with the kiss of Christ that's given at the end, right? And so I, I think I think uh, I think he would be on board with this. Now, I do have a question for you because you're a philosopher, Ian, yeah. and there is a philosopher's critique of Conrad here. Um, yeah. David Goldknopf condemns Conrad. Right? He says. He doesn't recognize the most vexing epistemological problem of the Western world since the time of the Milesian philosophers, namely, how do we go from the ephemeral and notoriously fallible evidence of the senses to the truth which is assumed, wishfully or not, to underlie that evidence? That's obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well put, sir. Good answer. Yeah, that is obnoxious. That's that's ridiculous. No, I mean, Conrad is precisely saying that, uh, yeah, you're not going to be able to get something that's rationally nailable, downable, that uh, is going to be universal, universally accepted. But that there's a sort of, you you dig down and and you get us to drop our sort of rational defenses and and just be as naked and vulnerable and mortal as we are, and that there is a lot of solidarity there. So, I mean, that's... I'd have to read the whole article uh, that that came from, but that seems like he's really tone deaf. And, but wh- kinda, and why does Conrad it. need to justify it uh, or prove an epistemology one way or the other? I mean, I, that seems like um, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I like. I mean, it, this is either true or it isn't, and it, and it works or it doesn't. And I, so I, I, you know, one reason why I love Dostoevsky and I, I teach him in my philosophy classes is that. Um, I think some some stuff and Aristotle too. You just have to get out in the world and try it out. There's just no mm-hmm. way to to kind of crunch the numbers in the lab. Okay, um, good, good. Stick you with get it. Out there. But that's now. I was thinking of Aristotle in relation to Dostoevsky and Conrad a second ago when you two were making the case for why Dostoevsky would like this, and I, I'll tell you why. It's because it's not the the solidaristic, the kind of mystical solidarity that Dostoevsky would object to. It's the veneration of the individual and the veneration of the the individual will as the as the key to unlocking that universal solidarity. 
Conrad no, is awarding a tremendous. Hold on, Conrad is okay. awarding a tremendous power here to the to the romantic artist, as uh, I think Dostoevsky would be skeptical, self-flagellating. You know, Dostoevsky would. Well, no, uh, but I, while I, being, of course, messianic at the same time, and and all of that, but that's where I think the the difference lies. I, I, it's a it's a very romantic sensibility, but I would say that you know he is explicitly not doing something that contemporaries are doing, right? And that the earlier romantics had done, where there is the artist who is on a plane higher than the 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 rest of the vast human you know humanity, the artist is a craftsman, right? And, you know, there's this intense sort of moral pressure, you know, it's, it's, it's along with that opening line about how the condition of art should carry its justific- justification in every line, right? You have to, um, uh, uh, only through complete unswerving devotion to the perfect blending of form and sub- substance, only through the unremitting, never discouraged care for the shape and ring of sentences and approach can be made to plasticity, to color, and that light of magic suggestiveness may be brought to play for an evanescent instant over the commonplace surface of words, of the old, old words worn thin, defaced by ages of careless usage. And if you do that, if you do that work, right, then you reach out to other people, not as the exalted artists sort of on high, but in a place of solidarity. And I think that's very different from some of the stuff that you get from, uh, you know, the sort of ascetic movement, right? Uh, Hello, fellow worker. It is I, the vanguard of the proletariat. Well, yeah, here. I mean, you know, as, when as I As a want... common man to lead you to the revolution. <laughs> yes, no, I am just like you. Uh, I am just like you, industrial. Uh, no, come on. Of course, it's on high. What are you talking about? <laughs> not Where? everybody in the Universal Brother. Well, because he's not. It doesn't have the same aesthetic trappings as a sort of like high romanticism that creates a, a kind of Superman out of the artist. But it it is it is still a kind of uh, it is still a performance of of this kind of will that is uh, all emanating from the individual, which of course is like, that's, that is how art works. I mean, art is, it is ultimately springing from the individual. The best parts of this, or the parts that I should say that are most resonant for me are the ones where he insists on something a, a bit more solid. That's where I feel the most connected to it. And I, I look, I, look, I, I, I I don't know. It just feels like it's insisting a bit too much on the, particularly on the universality of it, okay. I mean, that it's going to reach everybody across. But again, again, like it, it's really the kind of thing that can only be field tested, right? Like if you can access that part of yourself, right? Like dig down to that. And do we take it for granted that there is such a part of us that is just sort of given that that involves all this vulnerability and joy and sorrow and aspiration and all that, right? Like you have that, Jake. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, but it's a good question. Um, Do we take it for granted? Well, okay. So, I mean, go to... That's a legitimate question. I mean, why does art endure, right? Go go to a monastery across the world, go to a funeral across the world, like find people who are in that state of kind of being a little bit decomposed intellectually, emotionally and down rubbed down to something like a core. And if you find people who are just different, just foreign, 
um, monstrous to you, you know, as they're grieving their daughter's death or as they're contemplating the mortality or, or whatever. Um, if you find people who are just absolutely another animal to you, then, then Conrad is wrong. Um, but, but it just, it, and maybe I, you know, I think I'm not as well traveled as the two of you and, and, uh, you know, probably you guys have seen things I haven't. Um, but, but in my limited experience of the world, it does seem like there's quite a lot of soft stuff down at the bottom that, that we share. Also, I don't think that, you know, okay. Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking for worker solidarity, I don't, you know, walk into the coal mine with a copy of Nostromo, um, and start passing it out. But I will say that I think there's often a, a sort of sense of like, you know, Conrad is high art and other things that are high, high art are not as sort of don't necessarily speak to, to, uh, you know, speak as broadly, you know, therefore a rarefied audience. I, I find that, that, that oftentimes, um, <laughs> You don't know what's going to speak to somebody, or where art is going to become sort of essential. Uh, and you know, I think of something that's a. Uh, do you know Brian Doherty's Theater of War? He, no. he had this oh, idea. The theater of War guy. Yeah, of like yeah, staging yeah. classic Greek plays yes. for veteran audiences, right? And he just thought that you know, like these were, you know, we think of them as you know, uh, high culture, very removed from us. But like these were plays that were put on some of the more you know, written by military veterans, right? Um, and, uh, you know, there was something that, that uh, the entire uh, society, right, coming back from war would see. So, you know, he puts on uh, Ajax, right, for an audience of active duty military. Um, and you have, you know, story of Ajax, a sort of great warrior who's kind of humiliated by his peers and insulted and goes insane, humiliates himself and will commit suicide. Um, and after, you know, his betrayal and he's trying to sort of start the conversation going and, um, uh, uh, he explains like, you know, uh, you know, the author, author of this, Sophocles, had been like a Greek general. And why do you think a Greek general would have written a play like this? And there's a, like a Marine corporal in the audience who raises his hand and says, uh, to improve morale, right? And uh, Toerius is sort of at first amused by this. And he's like, you know, why, why would it amuse, you know, how would it raise morale to have a play about like a guy who's betrayed by his commanders and... Uh, goes insane and humiliates himself and commits suicide. And the corporal just says, cause it's true. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, great art. It's not gonna, it's not that it's always going to speak to everybody, but there are going to be aspects of the human condition that people, no matter where they're from are going to need, they're going to need to find reflected back at them right so yeah and, aristotle says that tragedy yeah. is is a lower form of art than comedy um because tragedy is is accessible to everyone right <laughs> anyone seeing a mother like torn apart mourning the death of her child feels that in their gut um comedy it's a little more rarefied you have to get some stuff so he he seems on, on board with that phil no, but yeah. this is essentially why I was saying I thought of Aristotle in relation to Dostoevsky in that line. I, I don't think that uh, 
like I wasn't trying to make a Conrad is rarefied point. In fact, I think among sort of the greats of 19th century literature, Conrad's novels are much more accessible and work much better as popular plot-driven novels uh, than a lot of them, especially The Secret Agent is a page-turner, you know? it's uh, um, But the it's the the kind of... There's something ethereal in a kind of hyper-universality that I... Hmm. I start to wonder about, which is not to say... I, I would say, he, I don't think it's ethereal. So, uh, well, I, so I, O'Connor, I, right? Like, so think of like a Flannery O'Connor, right? Um, sort of riffing on, on similar ideas here, right? Um, and she says, you know, she talks about like the sort of the sad spectacle, spectacle of like a highly intelligent person trying to write fiction using their intellect and their sensibility and psychological astuteness and it like falling dead. And she says, the fact is that the materials of the fiction writer are the humblest. Fiction is about everything human and we are made out of dust. And if you scorn getting yourself dusty, then you shouldn't try to write fiction. It's not a grand enough job for you. And Conrad in, you know, somewhat more grandiose language is getting at a similar idea when he, He's essentially saying, so after this sort of, he has this very sacred vision of art and how it's immune to the tides of opinion because it's operating at this sort of deeper, lower level. He he argues that fiction, if it aspires at all to be art, it appeals to the temperament, right? It creates the moral, emotional atmosphere of the place and time. Such an appeal to be effective must be an impression conveyed through the senses, Right. And in fact, it cannot be made in any other way because temperament, whether individual or collective, is not amenable to persuasion. And so, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of grand ideas, but, you know, <laughs> what does it all come to? This intensely rigorous sort of looking, trying to, to convey what is really That's there. The part, but there's <laughs> a tension between that insistence right. on achieving a kind of temperamental effect that conjures a, a sensory something sense you know something experiential there's a tension to me between that which requires a kind of particularity look this is a cliche but all i'm saying finally is like to reach that soft deep down part which truly is universal which all of us share and which we should not lose sight of the fact that we all share that. But to reach that thing, I find that, uh, you know, too much insistence on a kind of ideal of universality and art tends to be kind of wan and uh, lacks that, that temperamental mm-hmm. heat, that temperamental intensity necessary to conjure the experience, that's all. I think that, uh, yeah. and I'm picking on this a bit in part because I found it, I'd never read this before, so I was coming to this with a, you know, I know Conrad from his novels really exclusively, the novellas and novels. I don't think I've ever read, I'm not sure I've ever read any nonfiction by Conrad before. But I have for years thought of Conrad as somebody who, as much as I like him, uh, in certain novels in particular, I always think of Under Western Eyes with this, a great novel, but there's like long passages in the middle, like 20 pages at a time. Where I'm just, 
Jesus, I mean, does this need to be here? I mean, can we just go, go to the next thing? You know, like mm. it feels very sort of uh, feels a little pointless. I'm not sure exactly what it's there for. So okay. I was picking up on that here too. All right, so I want to I want to try to back up for one second and lay down uh, before I have too much of this whiskey. Um, lay down the basic structure of what I take Conrad's argument to be here. And it, it, it happens in chunks at different parts of the preface. Mm -hmm. And it's not entirely clear to me that they fit together super neatly or, or, or at least not perfectly. Um, but I think, okay, here's what he thinks you, you do if you want to, uh, write, uh, serious literature. So, um, you dig down deep inside yourself you, you descend to that lonely region of stress and strife, he says. Um, you kind of isolate yourself both from the comforts of society and from the influences of society. And you place your, your honest, sincere temperament in confrontation with the world. And you look at a pebble or you look at a fist fight or you look at uh, the ocean or whatever it is, and you look at it just absolutely rawly and honestly and you, you bring your whole self to it, right? You're not coming to it like, um, you know, like Immanuel Kant's scientist who says, you know, you know, if a scientist comes to nature with his questions, he poses his questions and compels nature to answer, right? So Conrad's artist comes much more nakedly and wholly to the world, right? And he does this kind of like hard ascetic work of just being there and just letting things speak as they want to fine that's all pretty clear um somehow by bringing this temperament to bear right he he gets some kind of epistemological leverage and he's able to spot things that are not obvious to us most of the time um and they are big things they are um you know what is it to look at the world and uh, find in each of these things what is fundamental, what is enduring and essential, their one illuminating and convincing quality, the very truth of their existence. Um, that's a lot to see. Um, and <laughs> and somehow, right, especially the oneness of it, that, that's part of what makes it kind of distinctly modern and distinctly Western to me is like the one essential reality. It's it's sort of, it's sort of a, a kind of Platonism. Um well, should we, okay. should we do the, the, the famous quote here? Um, my task, which I am trying to achieve, is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel. Yeah. It is, before all, to make you see. That right. and no more, and it is everything. If I succeed, you shall find there according to your deserts. Encouragement, yeah. consolation, fear, charm, all you demand, and perhaps also that glimpse of truth for which you had forgotten to ask. Right. But okay, so there's this, we're seeing reality down to its like, deepest, deepest root, single root. Um, but we're also coming into contact with each other as these kind of sad, forlorn, hoping, loving things that we are at the same time. And, and those two tasks aren't automatically twinned, right? Like those might not, you might not accomplish both, both at once, but he, he thinks you will, right? And this sense that art is supposed to drill down and find the reality under the appearances and find how that deepest reality kind of animates and, and brings the rest of the appearances into being is a very traditional kind of Christian, post-Christian Western notion of what art is up to. Um, what's 
a question mark for me is why, like, what does Conrad think he's seeing down there? Right. Like why, and why should it be consoling? Right. Like if, if you're Dostoevsky, then, then you're finding the kind of self-given God down at the bottom. Um, and you're showing how he animates everything. And that's really beautiful. And, and, and of course that would be a joyful thing to look at. Um, but, but, uh, Conrad's an atheist and, um, Part of me wonders whether this is not a little bit of kind of mooching off of residual Christianity um, or some residual religiosity, right? Because if not, I don't know why we would assume that this task of locating the essential fact of reality would be at all consoling, at all valuable, at all good. Um, does that or, make sense, guys? Or that there would be one. Very deeply insightful, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, first of all, you've now made me more sympathetic to, to Conrad's position. I thought that was a very moving case for what he's trying to do to summon that sort of part of yourself and allow that part of yourself to encounter the world nakedly. I mean, I suppose that if there is an atheistic, uh, saving grace, it would be post-Christian, but if there, it, nevertheless, that it would be the shared experience that perhaps mm -hmm. the, the fact that the truth is not ultimately isolating, but is perhaps ultimately itself a form of communion. I mean, that mm -hmm. sort of comes back to that. Yeah. First. Now, frankly, I find that utterly unconvincing. So yeah. I... So that's part of why I, f I say that that brotherhood, there's something wan or ethereal about it to me because I don't think that the truth itself is, uh, I mean, it depends on the truth to state the obvious, you know, right. whether or not it's, it's ultimately a form of human communion and consolation. But I think the question you ask is the right one. I mean, so Nietzsche says that, you know, to, to suffer, bear our suffering together is sort of the deep, early Nietzsche says that to bear our suffering together is the sort of deepest consolation that we have as humans. And that I think is also the kind of intuition that lies behind the weird ubiquity of tragedy across, across civilizations, like where, where we do, you know, for reasons that are not immediately obvious to me, create these art forms where you're reveling in the destruction of good people, <laughs> Right. You're sitting yourself in a theater and subjecting yourself to, you know, the the faultless dismemberment, dismemberment of, of, a, of, you know, a good and living person. Yeah, but Ian, stop me if I'm wrong. I'm not yeah. a, a Nietzsche scholar, so maybe I'm I'm talking out of turn here. But Nietzsche doesn't mean by that that we uh, achieve some sort of fraternal bond by uh, sharing our suffering. He means that enduring our own suffering is a, a higher value, no? Or yeah, early, that early Nietzsche is not so, it's not so kind of great man individualistic. So I was thinking the birth of tragedy when I was talking about that. Does that, is that what he says in the birth of tragedy? I, you know, so this in point terms is, of, it's been several yeah, years. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty okay. sure he says that. <laughs> oh, it's just <laughs> but I didn't something on like the Schopenhauerian, how, how do you say that? Schopenhauerian? Yeah, anyway. probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, your question is, uh, to like that, that is to me, maybe that's the crux of it, right? Like whether ultimately the aesthetic, he, Conrad wants to have both an aesthetic, uh, 
transcendence and the moral transcendence in this. And maybe the yeah. aesthetic transcendence is doing the work for a moral transcendence that is, I've, if it's anything, only a sort of afterlife of a Christian ideal that he no longer actually believes in. The, the 20th century is filled with artists who want art to, to fill the, yeah. you know, the role of, of religion, and I've never bought it, right? Um, oh, and long before the 20th, yeah. I mean yeah. – um, yeah, Hegel. I mean, lots, lots of the romantics. All the German romantics sure. yeah, were, yeah. were hopeful that that was what art could do, and it's it's not crazy because it it had been understood for centuries before that that what art did was to take deep ineffable realities and put them into matter, right? Put them right. into paint and stone and wood and 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 tones in the air and stuff. Um, so it it was understood to be performance or quasi sacramental function. Um, so it's not wild that if the church kind of starts to look unreliable to you, you're thinking now about the composer and the painter. Right. And, and, you know, and so that's what he, he directly says, right? Like done well, art will awaken in the hearts of the beholders, that feeling of unavoidable solidarity. Right. And for me, you know, so like when I read Jean-Marie, right. Who, you know, who we discussed sort of got like a year and a half ago on the podcast, um, you know, survivor of torture, survivor of Auschwitz, um, you know, for him, yeah. atone, you know, he sort of dismisses ideas of atonement as having only theological, right. Um, and builds a sort of very mm-hmm. coherent intellectual individualistic case for sort of, um, essentially a dead end of the human spirit in, in the wake of, horrific tragedy that can't be atoned for mm-hmm. it sort of, you know, can't be, can't be forgiven, can't be, um, uh, can't be redeemed in any sense. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I like that isolated audio clip there. Just survivor <laughs> of Auschwitz. Yeah. yeah right. I know. What? <laughs> yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Just a little concentration camp humor to lighten this up. <laughs> By the way, did you, um, so there's a, there's a joke. Why I, I got this from mass actually online mass this week. There's a, there's a sort of teacher and he's with his friend and he's about to retire. And, um, he's one of the greatest teachers the school ever had. And, and an angel comes down, right. And it just appears before him and his buddy. And the angel says, in honor of all that you've done, you get one of three gifts. You can either have infinite wealth, infinite wisdom, or youth and good looks. And without hesitation, this teacher, this man who's you know molded so many students says, infinite wisdom. And the angel touches his eyes and departs. And the man opens them with a, 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 a look of just utter astonishment and sits down. And his friend turns to him and he says, say something, say something. You have infinite wisdom. And the teacher looks up and he says, I should have taken the money. Yeah. <laughs> what the, why did you just tell that joke? <laughs> uh, what are we doing? Are we having intermission right now? <laughs> so we break. Well, so I, 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 you know, I feel like uh, you know Conrad is, uh, you know, with, without, you, you know, without, without a little bit more of a metaphysic, right, that I can yeah, buy yeah. into. Uh, yeah. I look at this and I want to believe. I want to believe so much. Yeah. That like the thing is, you know, this like solidarity that you get through art, but there's like a cynical part of me that's like the, eh, you should have taken the money. 
Uh, mm. Is that what you get when you read a like? If I get solidarity truly from my highest, most transcendent experiences of art, particularly of literature, I feel a sense of uh, solidarity with existence, not with my yeah. fellow man. Frankly, no? no. I feel a sense of solidarity with existence. I feel mm. a sense of uh, a a a acute reconciliation to the fact of existence in a way that is uh, somehow both inspiring and uh, without false consolation. I mean, that's, I think how I would describe it, you know, it's a, a, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't, I don't feel moved to, and obviously this is, in part a reflection of the literature. But I mean, you're talking about, we're talking about the Brothers Karamazov. I didn't come away from the Brothers Karamazov, which is a book that moved me deeply thinking so deeply about my connection to, uh, to my fellow human being. I felt more deeply about my connection to this grand ordeal of existence Mm -hmm. in which I, I guess you would say in which all of us human beings are consigned ultimately to the same fate. And so yeah. in that sense, there is a solidaristic hmm. element to it. But you, you don't feel less alone reading, reading great literature. I do. I do feel that, yeah. that binding, you know, when, you, when Connor said it binds men to each other, which binds together all humanity, the dead to the living and the living to the unborn. It is, I mean, it is art that makes me feel any sense of that. Yeah. But yeah. I feel sympathy with the, uh, with, the emptiness. The emptiness feels less empty. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm trying to be honest. Like, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, it doesn't rouse in me a sense. Look, I hear it in part. I hear that that kind of fraternal solidarity, and it has a very specific meaning to me. I mean, I know I have felt fraternal solidarity before, so I can recognize that feeling in myself. <laughs> And that's not the feeling I tend to get when I'm moved by great art. I, when I'm moved by great art, it's more of a, a sense of sympathy with the facts of the, the plain you know, a sympathy with the emptiness, which feels less empty, I guess, yeah. is the best way I can put it. Well, I mean, so Dostoevsky, first of all, should – it shouldn't work just as a book, right? Um, <laughs> he specifically thinks you have to get your ass out there and, and engage in active selfless love. You have to kind of break yourself mm-hmm. on the, the wheel of self-donation, right. and then right. you can fall in love with everyone and see that you are guilty for all and that everyone is, mm-hmm. is really wonderful. Well, this um, is like, you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins sort of asked, you know, sort of – yeah, I mean, I'm doubting, I'm struggling, what should I do? And his answer was give alms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, but so, and, and also, I mean, a lot, okay, so real quick, real quick, um, Hegel thinks that art is supposed to take the absolute, sort of the deepest metaphysical reality and make it manifest in, in matter. Um, but he thinks that's impossible because you can't manifest the absolute in matter. So you have to plug in an ethos as a middle term. Um he thinks that you have to manifest a sort of way of life that is the appropriate response to the metaphysic. 
and kind of that's how we get access to it is the way that the artist approaches the metaphysic or the way that the people depicted approach ultimate reality. Um, we can kind of, um, you know, and then that produces an aesthetic. We're moved by it and we're kind of pulled into the ethos, which is a way of relating to the absolute. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's always in Hegel's view, um, or always until things break as they have now, um, there's always an ethical component so that there should be like homework from the literature. <laughs> like you should be adjusting yourself. And that doesn't mean giving alms necessarily, but it's, but some sort of adjustment of your posture towards reality. Um, the, the effect of which were it widely practiced would be to bring us into harmony with one another and into harmony with that deep metaphysical truth. Yeah. So, so the, the work of art is not done on its own, at least not in that, slightly older and Hegel is basically taking like a lot of Christian intuitions and kind of, um, de, de, uh, creedalizing them. Yeah. Yeah. De- yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember but, a conservative intellectual telling me years ago that among conservative intellectuals, this guy's, uh, variety of conservative intellectuals, which was sort of Catholic conservative, that, um, if you weren't a Catholic, you could get a pass by being a Hegelian. <laughs> that probably works. Yeah. 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 It probably all comes out in the wash at, you know, the judgment day right. anyway, one or the other. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so Hegel, okay. So now I'm getting into my dissertation. I'm going to try to move quickly. Um, so Hegel thinks that sometimes that ethos gets shown up as parochial, that it doesn't actually capture the deepest um, reality of our existence. Mm-hmm. And when it becomes parochial, then we move from into from a tragic into a comic stage where the job of artists is to throw stones at the regnant ethos and just point out that it's bullshit and that it's a pose, right? It's just our little parochial desires dressing themselves up as deep metaphysical reality. And I would argue that that Conrad is trying to hang on to like the pre-comic mm. understanding of art and that we're in a comic phase now. And that's why Bello feels a little weird about being a Conradian. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's too self-justifying. Um, you know, trot out the owl of Minerva here. Um, <laughs> well, presumably he would fly and not trot, but yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, end end the podcast right there. Yes, no, I lose, I lose. He would fly in that crowd. You're right, um, but unless you are very, very well trained, this is one of the, like there's no people come to us for our Hegel jokes. Right? No, I could live to be a hundred, though, and I'll have referred to a, my metaphorical owl will have trotted. Uh, no, I think though, but I, I think that the the suggestion that the reason why there, you know. It's not just Bellow, right? That the reason why I have a bit of a jaundiced perspective or a bit of skepticism towards uh, towards Conrad's romanticism is merely because there's been an epochal shift and uh, I, I'm, the, the context is different. I don't know. I, I don't because I can judge other people writing in the same mode and in the same generational milieu who I think achieve more fully what Conrad is trying Mm -hmm. to achieve here. Look, there's a heavy handedness. This is what's good. What's great in Conrad's writing, I think is that there's a brilliance of characterization. Like when Conrad's good, you know, there's a, a 
he's, he writes characters very well. Uh, frankly, I know people look down on plot, but I think he plots well. I think he writes characters well. I think that they're. I, they're I think real. people who look down on plots are very foolish. But anyway, go. I on. agree. I, I think that he uh, there's a real confrontation with the the dark and the soft matter of existence in a way that I value quite highly in, in all writers. So Conrad does a lot of things very well, but here especially, it feels heavy-handed. In other words, it seems to me uh, a bit unfair to suggest that the criticisms of this of this uh, posture towards art necessarily reflect a kind of uh, epochal cynicism rather than a, a judgment on the art itself. I mean, maybe there's... Okay, something. okay. So here's, here's what I mean. I mean that the the central metaphysical reality is not thought to be one that we would want to align ourselves with. Um, right. There's, I think, and I'm, I'm out on a bit of a limb here, but I, I think there is um, in 2020, a much wider spread intuition than there was in 1920 or 1820 or 1720 that um, the deepest reality is not, it's an ugly one. It's, it's, it's consumption and death and, and struggle. Um, it's, it's Darwinian in an ugly sense. Um, and so any, any art that attempts to be plumbing or, or claims to be plumbing these deep, deep, deep depths and coming up with an ethos, a way to bring us into harmony with it. Um, unless it's counseling, like, like unless it's Lars von Trier, um, who is counseling us to come into a kind of alignment with deep reality. And it's horrific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I think there's a suspicion of the deep metaphysical reality and any story that gets told about that deep metaphysical reality that isn't dark I think people find a little facile and a little self-serving. You know, this is, that, it's, it's, you know, this is funny. Getting very Auden, Auden had the, the exact opposite idea, right? So you, know, you mentioned for Hegel, a comic is like throwing stones at the ethos that's false for, um, for Auden, you get most serious when you're most funny, right? Hmm. Um, because, and, and this is from a, an essay of his Bellman, the ass. The man who takes seriously the command of Christ to take up his cross and follow him must, if he is serious, see himself as a comic figure, for he is not mm-hmm. the Christ, only an ordinary man, yet he believes that the command be perfect is seriously addressed to him. Um, mm. uh, and that is a very different sense of uh, the comic as, a, as actually a, a way of, of, of approaching uh, sort of closer to, I think, the, mm. the depths of the seriousness. And maybe we should start with that note to turn to... Uh, Bellow. We should uh, hold on one second because yeah. this makes me think of Armand White. Who know you know who Armand White is? In uh, Armand White is oh, now, he's a, is he a movie critic? He's a movie critic now for National Review. But for I disagree many, with everything I've ever seen him write. Yeah, I've seen a couple things. He's the greatest film critic alive. He's uh, <laughs> so <laughs> no, untrue. No, it's uh, absolutely no, oh, god. Okay. Well, you're wrong. Uh, oh, he's he's. Uh, He's the best film critic alive. He's the only one. I feel sorry that our last. podcast listeners won't be able to see like the expression on Ian's face. <laughs> Just dismay. 
<laughs> no, no. People accuse him of being a contrarian because uh, it's a cynical posture to accuse Armin White of being a contrarian, and it comes from people who feel indicted by the seriousness okay, okay. of his. That actually, all of this is coming together. All of this is coming. Together. <laughs> the person who most fully embodies the first part of the Conradian ethos, the justification in every line, the absolute moral seriousness is Armin White, who's never tried to make a friend in the film industry. He's never tried to make a a friend among his fellow film critics who wrote for many years for New York press. And he wrote for a uh, bizarro left-wing online publication called first of the month named after the bone thugs and harmony song named after the day when your welfare check arrives he is was always sort of a strange uh gnostic left-wing christian humanist and armin white you won't agree with every film review he writes but you'll know especially when you read enough of them that means it. And truly, I I can't, I mean this very seriously when I say this, people who accuse him of mere contrarianism are, are only demeaning themselves by making that accusation. It's an unwillingness to deal with the fact that he's dead serious, that he absolutely has something to say. And White, the thing that I responded to very early on, the reason why when I was like 15 or 16, I really, really responded to this guy who was writing these very strange film reviews in which he would pick some art house movie that everybody thought, you know, the Lars von Trier of its day. And he would compare it to like the Transformers movie. And he would do a review about how the Lars von Trier, whatever the Lars von Trier was in 1995, was cynical garbage. And the Transformers movie was transcendent humanism. And it people felt that this was a kind of novelty or a trick but in truth it was exactly what you're talking about ian it was that he was out of step with the ethos of the time white over and over and over again refused to accept fashionable nihilism over and over and over again and people never forgave him for it and when they accused him of contrarianism when they accused him of being simply a provocateur what they were unwilling to look at was that he was the one who had the guts over and over and over again to say this pandering nihilism that the rest of you flatter yourselves by thinking is some kind of great artistic statement it is precisely that is pandering nihilism are these the nazis no donna these men are nihilists there's nothing to be afraid of Was he right 100% of the time? No, he wasn't. Mm. But he was right in the in the deepest sense, and he was right about what really counted, which is exactly like you're saying. He, he would not settle for that kind of uh, uh, Irving Howe in a great essay about modernism for a commentary refers to uh, sympathy with the abyss, which I think maybe comes from, he's quoting D.H. Lawrence perhaps, but it's a, it's a great line, you know, as a kind of one line summary of the ethos of modernism, sympathy with the abyss. White doesn't want sympathy with the abyss. He rejects sympathy with the abyss and he recognizes most importantly, not only as a moral proposition, but also as a film critic, he recognizes how fashionable sympathy with the abyss has become and that it, it 
it treats itself as if it's a kind of brave statement when in fact nothing could be easier than right. sympathy with the abyss. There's a, there's a, um, at a Shakespeare scholar at Dartmouth used to talk about uh, Macbeth. And there's a scene in Macbeth where um, uh, one of the characters is, is blinded um, and the soldiers who had like tied him down before he's, he's blinded and cruelly treated uh, it's just an intensely painful scene. Uh, the soldiers then sort of feel bad about him and give him a poultice for his eyes as they sort of lead him off stage. And there's a modern, sort of famous modern staging of Macbeth where um, uh, in the 1960s, um, where instead of having the soldiers, uh, uh, you know, sort of feel bad for what they've done and then apply the poultice to his eyes, uh, they kick him off stage, right? And... Uh, of course, sort of, uh, sorry, not Macbeth, uh, King Lear, right? And so sort of famously, the Victorians had a King Lear. They thought King Lear was too dark and Cordelia lives at the end of it. And we look at that and we laugh and we go, ha ha, they couldn't take the, you know, the seriousness of King Lear. And he says, you know, the having the soldiers kick the character off stage, that's our version of Cordelia being alive at the end. He says, we think we're making King Lear tougher by making it more cruel, Right. We're actually making it easier on ourselves because the fact of the matter is if you, if you make the world too dark, we don't believe it, right? We can enjoy its sort of arty darkness, right? But it doesn't actually terrify us in the kind of existential way that King Lear does because most of us are not the soldier who will gleefully kick the, the brutalized man off the stage. Most of us, if we're honest, are the soldier who will do his duty, tie the man to the chair, watch him be blinded, then feel bad about it and apply a poultice to his eyes. And he, and he used to tell classes, King Lear is, is, you know, shows as bad as humanity gets. You start to darken it. Um, it's, it's just a sort of form of, um, of arty darkness. that doesn't strike to the core of us. And, and, and thus isn't actually, it's kind of existentially horrifying. Okay. Film and TV question. Any film or TV character ever, who is the one that scared you the most? Horror movie, non-horror movie, reality TV, drama, doesn't like, what was the scariest film or TV? Are you going to say Marlo from The Wire? Whoa. No. <laughs> but uh, That's what I was working on. But I have somebody from an HBO show, so maybe uh, maybe it's very predictable. But not Marlo, no. You want me to go first? It's uh, the mother, Lydia, from The Sopranos. Just chilled me to my core. I found her terrifying. Tony's mother on The Sopranos, mm -hmm. I found to be some sort of like a gothic, mythical, evil, you know, like an evil mother is, you know, my mother's like the an angel. My mother's an angel, let me tell you. <laughs> no, but... Uh, <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, to all the Italians out there, racism against you. Oh, I uh, saw you get canceled. Yeah. Uh, one of these days. It's it's ah. good. But uh no, I find the idea of like the mother who is plotting against you, you know, who doesn't like she doesn't smother him in the crib. It's not one act of sociopathic aggression. 
he lives well into adulthood, but his mother's just constantly plotting against him in this cold, vindictive way. I find that horrifying on some deep level. I think think I know where we're friends because I was going to say the mother and the Manchurian candidate. Listen, that's right. Right. It's the same fear, essentially. Yeah. I I mean, so I think Marlowe is, for me, and and the scariest movies I've seen are probably, or the most horrifying are probably Von Trier movies. Um, Or maybe Bellatar a little bit. But but in Von Trier and Bellatar, while humans can be really horrible, their stand-ins, their horror is a stand-in for nature. Um, Right. Right, so they, and I think Marlowe is too, actually. I think Marlowe is just so blankly, cruel right he doesn't kill out of passion it's just it doesn't he doesn't notice just like nature just doesn't reality hey, just doesn't notice hey, you the want it to be one way but it's not it's the other way you want it to be one way what you want it to be one way man i don't you want it to you... be one man, way stop stop saying that what is the other way It's the other way. <laughs> All right, we uh, we should we I should get on to Bello, Good but yeah. um, any any comments on you know what if you took this manifesto seriously? Try to live your I life. By so it? I don't I don't know that I don't. Know. Oh, and I think live it would our be paralyzing to take it seriously. I think that if you took it seriously as an artist, I think it's the sort of thing you could write seriously and mean it, and really be trying to sort of rise to your highest self in the writing of it and call forth, you know, your, your greatest potential as an artist, but that if you tried to write by it, if you tried to enact it, that it would be paralyzing because it requires, uh, it requires too wide a gaze. You have to be looking Mm -hmm. at too much at one time. There's not enough (sighs) particularity to it. No, I don't think so. I mean, towards the end, he says, all he's trying to do is make you look at what's around you to make you see, um, to snatch, to snatch in a moment of courage from the remorseless rush of, of time, a passing phase of life is only, well, it's actually, it's only the beginning of the task. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Right. It's too, it's too high a burden. I think that, uh, you know, I have a view of art that's more kind of conversational, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's rigorous, but it's a way of entering into a, into a sort of ongoing conversation, right? I like the sort of books as thick letters to friends notion, mm. um, sort of, you know, uh, feels to me a little bit less precious and and more productive and less but, paralyzing. Is it, is it but I like, he says that there's yeah. only one question, which is how should we live? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, who's going to answer it for us? I mean, Tolstoy w- would try very directly uh, to yeah. answer it for us. Uh, it's not my favorite part of his novels, though. Mm. But. Uh, so sh- we should go on to to Bello, um, uh, and Mosby's memoirs. So you you wanted to do Bello because because you had found the Conrad through the Bello, right? Yeah, and and he understood himself to be working in this mode. And then this particular short story was uh, the recommendation of of Matt Sitman. Uh, I think our mutual friend, I would say. Um, I've never, I've never met him, but we, we're like, we, we have tweeted at each other. Okay, and no, that's I, all it and takes. I, 
admire his work. Uh, I actually yeah. had a phenomenal review of Shalaba's uh, oh, uh, book. It was fantastic. Common Wheel, where he talks about his own issues with depression and, well, and the ways in which, uh, as Matt Sittman in, in Common Wheel, um, you know, sort of Shalaba connects his depression to sort of his politics and support for unions. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, review of, of Shilaba's, uh, how to, was it How to Be Depressed? Is the title how to Be Depressed. Well, did you see that Sitman and I and Morton Hoy Jensen did a roundtable with George like two nights ago? Uh, tell uh, us a yeah. bit about that. Yeah. So I, George, I missed it, yeah. Well, it's still available, guys, to be streamed as a video. Where would we um, go if we wanted to stream? Well, you would, you would go to Lyceum. Uh, you can find them on Twitter. I think it's lyceum.fm and then uh, they would have a link to this roundtable. So we did it with Sitman, this wonderful. Ian, I'm sorry to interrupt. Just also give people like the one minute introduction on who Shalaba is. Okay, so George Shalaba is a, a fellow Cambridge resident and a, a, a wonderful human um, oh. who, uh, in his spare time um, on the side, apart from his sort of um, office jobs that he worked for Harvard became, to my mind, probably the, the best uh, intellectual essayist of the past few decades. Um, man of the left, but, uh, but deeply just sort of wide open and humane. Um, probably, I'll only speak for myself now in this judgment, but, but probably um, would be something like Dan Bell, sort of cultural, culturally conservative, um, uh, economically socialist, you know, politically liberal, um, but has it just produced a, a great, a great body of of reflection, mostly book reviews, largely dealing with uh, philosophers and public intellectuals. Um, and uh, he he had this book come out recently, which is a very odd book, which I won't get into too deeply here. But it's called How to Be Depressed, and it's about his lifelong struggle with depression and. Uh, these these other uh, two guys and I um, had a great time talking with George on uh, on Crowdcast the other day uh, about the book and about uh, the way in which um, suffering and and depression in particular might kind of propel one into an intellectual vocation. Okay, so um, could you maybe uh, sort of summarize Mothby's memoirs? What is you know, what is this story? Yeah. Okay, so this is um, did did did, did Sitman give you a reason why he was suggesting this, or just one he liked? Just that it was quite good. And then during <laughs> the the aforementioned Shalaba conversation, no, no, sorry, as we were talking before the Shalaba conversation, um, I think he said it was um, oh god, Wilmore Kendall. I can't I can't remember, but he said it was actually um, based on someone that Bellow knew. But it's the story of a distinguished professor. Um, who is kind of in his uh, in his retirement years, and he has a Guggenheim grant to write his memoirs. Um, and he goes to I don't know how to pronounce yeah. this place. O a x a c a. How do you say that? Oaxaca. Oaxaca. Goes to Oaxaca. I'm to, guessing. Uh, to Mis- write his memoirs. Mr. Mosby, Doctor Mosby, really. Erudite, maybe even profound, thought much, accomplished much, had made some of the most interesting mistakes a man could make in the 20th century. 
Then he was in Oaxaca now to write his memoirs. And also the word memoirs has been largely ruined for me by the film Burn After Reading. Um, where, <laughs> where, where, what's his name? What's his name? Um, John, John Malkovich is the constantly talk, yeah. talking about my memoir. My, <laughs> my memoirs. My memoirs. <laughs> ruined. I cannot read the word anymore. Um, so goes to apparently a place called Oaxaca um, and uh, thinks and reflects a little bit about his work and kind of casts an eye backwards on people that he's known that he's weaving into his memoir. And, um, you know, I would say in the end is exposed as someone who has constructed a, a vast um, self-serving mythology of himself um, and, has in so doing uh, failed to confront either life or death um, and turns out to be quite a brittle, pathetic character. Um, yeah. So he, he is writing his memoirs and he uh, also just as with Bella, like the, the sentences are really good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and Bella is funny though. Uh, Mosby is not. Um, right. uh, the, the, the opening of the of, of the story is the birds chirped away, fweet fweet, butchwee fweet, doing all the things naturalists say they do, expressing abysmal depths of aggression which only man, stupid man, heard as innocence. <laughs> um, and uh, and he's <laughs> uh, he's 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 gotten through a chunk of the the memoirs, and maybe I should just read this paragraph. Uh, because I found it very funny. The time had come to put some humor into the memoirs. So far it had been fundamentalist family in Missouri, father the successful builder, early schooling, the state university, road scholarship, intellectual friendships, what I learned from Professor Collingwood, empire and the mental vigor of Britain, my unorthodox interpretation of John Locke. I work for William Randolph Hearst in Spain, the personality of General Franco, Radical friendships in New York, <laughs> wartime service with the OSS, the limited vision of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Comps, Proudhon, and Marx revisited de Tocqueville again. Nothing very funny here, and yet thousands of students and others would tell you Mosby had a great sense of humor. So They surely would. So they, he's gotten to the point to put some humor into his memoir, and he decides he's going to... Um, tell the story of this guy uh, that he had known in Europe um, post-war, right? Uh, And he's got the ridiculous name of Luskarten. Um, And after we get uh, some of Mosby's very jaded takes on the French and the Europeans more generally, uh, we get the story of Luskarten who had been a Leninist, a Trotskyite, then a follower of Hugo Euler, then of uh, Thomas Stamm, and finally of an Italian named Salemi, who gave up politics to become a painter, uh, an abstractionist. Lusgarden also gave up politics. He wanted now to be successful in business, rich, believing that the nights he'd spent poring over Das Kapital and Lenin's state and revolution would give him an edge in business dealings. And the guy's kind of a fool. He's extremely earnest. Um, and uh, he fails at that and then uh in sort of really kind of pathetic ways uh mosby sleeps with his wife um uh Lusgarden goes back to communism uh that turns out to be a sort of 
failure as well. And the, there's a sort of cruel quality to the way that Mosby is, is recounting this guy, sort of offering right. up this, this guy's life. Um, and you don't know that Mosby has slept with his wife until the end of the story, towards the end of the right. story, because it's all told through Mosby's memoirs. And, yeah. uh, and so Mosby is the one who's the executor of the tale. And so Luskarton's unremitting patheticness, his rather uh, vile patheticness, there's actually... Right. You know, there's nothing redeeming in him. He's a unfailingly uh, stupid, vain, inept character, uh, a cuckold, though you don't know that it's Mosby who has cuckolded him because it's Mosby writing this uh, initially. You know, what you realize towards the end of the story is that Mosby, who, uh, you know, I think Ian, you described him as brittle, and, and he's sort of entombed. He's immured within his own vanity within his own uh his own need to be relentlessly judgmental and and relentlessly Superior. negative yeah and uh yeah and and so what you what you don't realize quite right away until maybe three quarters of the way through the story or so is that you know, it becomes clear at a certain point that the portrayal of Lustgarten is in some ways uh, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a form of self-abuse, uh, un, unacknowledged, unconscious, and an, an indictment in some ways of Mosby himself, which he's now projected onto this foil, this patsy character, mm. Lustgarten. And he does it, you know, through Bellow. Um, he does it. It's it's all pulled off with a sort of with a verve, a, a kind of uh, movement, and uh, this sort of this verve of prose and this sort of uh, very elegant shorthand that that lends this sort of comic light comedy to it. But at the same time, it's like. It's light comedy, but it's like harrowing in its um, like the the bleakness of it it's is jaundice. harrowing. Yeah, it's totally jaundiced. The bleakness of it is harrowing, but it's it's this attempt at a defense against this like empty, unlived life. It's like a yeah. fundamentally unlived life that's all posture, that's all affectation, that's all judgment. So, so, you know, as you were talking, Jake, about um, how Conrad sort of can't help himself sometimes and he just yeah. sort of lets himself uh, reel off and it's too much, um, maybe because of the short format. I thought Bello was really disciplined in this, this story um, because I typically go to Bello for like the euphoric flights of, of prose, sure. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I got to the end of it and I was like, well, that was a little bit boring. <laughs> and I think that... Uh, <laughs> he did a nice job of inhabiting the character and not letting himself write right. as beautifully and sincerely as he is, as is his instinct. I think. Do you know what I think part of that was the, well, the flight would have been redemptive and he was denying Mosby yeah. the same redemption that Mosby denies Lustgarten. 
It's a right. it's a stretch after transcendence. When Bello lets himself unreal like that, it's 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 a transcendent uh, grasp, I think. But but Mosby's life is incapable of coming right. into contact with that because it's so sort of recoiled and shriveled. But have you? He's unpersoned himself. He's made he's himself not a human. Himself. Yeah, no. It's, well, it's, and, and, it's, and he's unpersoned himself. The the, the closest. Has either of you get... read Mister Samler's planet? No. Go ahead, Phil. No. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So the, the end of the story, he like goes, he goes on with like a sort of tourist exposition, you know, expedition um, to a sort of former place of human sacrifice, right? Um, you know, having sort of just offered up Lust Garden, right, to be kind of dissect, dissected and, and mocked. And I, I, I actually sort of liked Lust Garden by the end, to be perfectly honest. And I, I found there's something sort of earnest and vibrant about him that sort of appeals after, after you, um, uh, after you've spent this much time with Mosby. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, and so the, you know, he, he has this kind of, you know, sort of, um, in like an underground space, uh, kind of reflecting on this place of human sacrifice uh, it has this sort of suffocating feeling uh, and he ends up looking for, for daylight. Right. And then, yes, it was there. The light was there. The grace of life still there, or if not grace, mm. air, go while you can. Uh, I must get out. He told the guy, ladies, I find it very hard to breathe. And that's the end of the story. Um, and, and so that's the um, sort of nod to, I suppose, the, the transcendent that, that, that Mosby with his extremely sort of cruel uh, and, and kind of overly intellectualized approach uh, has destroyed for himself. So the Mr. Samler's planet, which must have been written after this, though I don't know uh, how long after this, this is clearly a rehearsal for Bellow's novel, Mr. Samler's planet. And I, I had never read, this story before i thought i had actually because i thought i had read this collection but if i did read it i had totally forgotten it because it was completely unfamiliar to me uh, as i went through it this time except that it was totally familiar to me and i was like why does this feel so familiar if i've never read it before and it starts with that very first line the bird tweeting caught my attention right away because mr samler's planet has in my opinion, one of the absolute great openings in all of uh, in all of literature, and it's this very nineteenth century opening for a twentieth century novel. But Bello is good at doing that in a way that doesn't feel anachronistic. And anyway, I mean, I've never forgotten. It's the the opening. There's this just like magisterial first paragraph that sort of takes in the whole world. And then that first paragraph, I, I remember the, the last line of the first paragraph has never left me. It's the soul wanted what it wanted. It had its own natural knowledge. It sat unhappily on superstructures of explanation, poor bird, not knowing which way to fly. And in particular, a poor bird, not knowing which way to fly has never left me. And I thought like, Oh, Bello just has a thing for starting stories with birds. Like, oh, that's, and I had <laughs> sort of made a note of it, like, steal this, like, you know, 
so, you know, use like gerbils or something. Step you know, one. I mean, yeah, so, like, gerbils. See, like, I've, I've uncovered the great man's secret. Check. <laughs> what will my animal be? You know? Siegel, Siegel observed from a safe distance the gerbils pattern, you know, whatever. But, uh, uh, no, no, but what I, what uh, I realized what, is that marching, I think, right? Like, mar- marching. Listen, enough, all right? The owl trots, the gerbil trots, right? Yeah, right now, runs on a wheel, <laughs> damn it. But uh, but this the Mosby character is clearly uh, it's funny because Samler is this Holocaust survivor intellectual in New York who's totally estranged from the madness of late sixties civilization in New York, and he's sort of he's watching like the ruin of the great sort of the great high civilization which he had already seen desecrated by the Holocaust. He's now watching in New York, the sort of American carnival afterlife of this civilization go mad. And, 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 uh, and he has this tragic relationship to it, not tragic in Mosby's way. It's a much more, uh, Samler is a serious, Samler's an actual intellectual and, uh, a lived human being with real experiences in a way that Mosby is not. He's not a caricature like Mosby is, but in some ways, Samler sort of combines aspects of Lustgarten and the Mosby. Mosby wishes he was something like that, but um, but the there there are these very obvious similarities because it's the sort of tour through history in the same way. Except in Samler, there's a tragic relationship to it, but. You know, in Mosby, it's like you see this guy who recognizes the he recognizes this great drama occurring around him and is somehow unequal to that which he observes and is so horrified by the way in which he judges himself against the history he sees occurring. He can't help but uh, he can't help but have this like this sort of deadly glibness, which prevents him from ever uh fully engaging with life right. um but it it seems to me very much a rehearsal for what in samler achieves these absolutely incredible transcendent flights in what is also i should say a novel that um people have called misanthropic not without reason you know like samler is a Mr. Sandler's Planet is an incredible novel that is uh, would not be <laughs> would not be judged uh, charitably by the standards of today, um, but is also uh, pretty ruthless in not only you know its insensitivities, let us say, but also in its general treatment of humanity. It, it, it it's rather ruthless but not glib in the way that Mosby is glib you know it's severe it's not uh it's not glib yeah you know that 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 line about how the the soul sat unhappily on superstructures of explanation right mm-hmm. i mean there's a there's a way in which you know Mosby is you know it's it is a deeply sort of critical portrait of an intellectual who is himself deeply critical of intellectuals, right? It's sort of, um, you know, he's a kind of right, Mosby's a right wing intellectual. Uh, 
uh, <laughs> who gets like bought out of Princeton because he's so unpleasant to everybody. Um, uh, the, the real original Mosby approach brought Mosby hatred, got Mosby fired. <laughs> and Princeton University had offered Mosby a lump sum to retire seven years early. Uh, Just to elaborate on the unpleasantness quickly, uh, quote, and then Mosby holding forth in Washington among the elite scotch drinkers stated mm-hmm. absolutely that however deplorable the concentration camps had been, they showed at least the rationality of German political ideas. The Americans had no such ideas. They didn't know what they were doing. No design existed. The British were not much better. The Hamburg firebombing, he argued in his clip style in full declarative phrases, betrayed the idiotic emptiness and planlessness of Western leadership. Finally, he said that when Atchison blew his nose, there were maggots in his handkerchief. You know, it's like National Socialism... At least it's an ethos, you know. Uh, <laughs> maggot bit. What, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, what's up with those, that maggot bit? Uh, they, I think it's just a put down, you know, that he's okay. desiccated a corpse. He okay, blows his okay. nose yeah, and yeah, maggots right. come out. Yeah, that's right. That was how I read it. Yeah, and he's savage to the um, uh, – to the state department in general, right? He said that the foreign service was staffed by rejects of the power structure. Young gentlemen from good Eastern colleges who couldn't make it as wall street lawyers were allowed to interpret the alleged interests of their class in the state department bureaucracy in foreign consulates. They could be rude to DPs and indulge their country club anti-Semitism, which was dying out then in the country clubs. Right. Um, and then, so it's, it's, it's not a particularly flattering portrait of, of anybody. And he, and he, slams the left there's you know sort of left, left the the depiction of lust garden in these like inc- like inscrutable uh you know arguments of fine points of left-wing doctrine among different flavors of oh, yeah. of like socialists and communists uh and like uh, you know, who they should give material aid to. Oh my God. You had to fight Franco and you had to fight Stalin as well. You know, so it was like thousands of pages of recondite examinations, five points. You had to fight Franco. You had to fight Stalin as well. There was, of course, no material aid to give, but had there been any, should it have been given? Um, <laughs> you know, these like savage, meaningless po- portraits on the left. I mean, guys, like a left wing Twitter, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. No, nothing changes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're uh, still working on that very question, I think. Right. Uh, I really did think that at points when I was reading this, like, man, this is very of the moment, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because it's universally dug down all the way, and he found that uh, universal. You know, I love this. There's a bit where, true. You know, so in, in one level, this is weird to pair with the Conrad, right? Because, you know, you're talking about like to make you see, and so much of this yeah. is filtered through ideas, right? Because it's filtered through this character who in some sense is failing to see reality, right? Because there's always sort of layers of kind of ideological suppositions on top of everything. Right. And the, and the desire to make these kind of like quick and cutting judgments. Um, There's an essay uh, Bella wrote called the writer is moralist. He talks about, you know, the problem of, you know, like Hemingway's, if you're looking for messages, try Western union, right. He says the, the, the problem is, the American writer himself has been brought up to take messages seriously. Americas are a sententious people and are taught at an early age to moralize. They learn it in su- Sunday school. They learn it from poor Richard. And then he goes through like a bunch of the, you know, kind of uh, sayings. Um, 
Uh, and then he says, but while this was happening, the Chicago papers reported gang li- gang li- uh, gangland killings almost daily. It might have occurred to school children as they passed from the pages of the Tribune to those of Elson's reader that perhaps literature didn't have too much to do with life. Give all to love, they read in Emerson, but in City Hall, there were other ideas on giving, and we had to learn, if we could, how to reconcile high principles with low facts. Um, and I feel like um, that sort of, you know, because like Bellow is somebody steeped in ideas in his writing. Like it's really rich. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's it's over rich, um, uh, uh, and that kind of comes with the the territory uh, of his style. Um, but you know, portraying these portraying these ideas um, and the ways in which they. No, like they're, they're prime motivators for for the human beings involved, right? Um, uh, See, is a part is what, of this is what's ahead. brilliant about Mister Sandler's planet. Like it's the the densest. It's the it's his Sandler's planet is Bella's novel that's densest with ideas, but also features a character who. Uh, masturbates in public by going into pharmacies and obsessing over the plump arms of, I think, exclusively Puerto Rican pharmacists while he presses into his leather briefcase to ejaculate. You know, it's this, it's the novel that uh, sort of finds the character who's not just ruthless caricature in the way that Mosby makes of Lost Garden, but who is truly most captivated by ideas in a kind of 19th century novel way, and then places him amidst this sort of nervous breakdown of like deformed, maladapted hedonism and... Uh, general social break. I mean, there's something that's brilliant about it to me in that it doesn't let the ideas just sort of roam free over historical terrain. It's one thing to have somebody wrestling with great ideas, either in isolation in sort of set pieces where, you know, you have characters discussing ideas in a chateau or, or uh, in, in repose somewhere, or, to have characters in the midst of grand historical events in a kind of Tolstoyan sense who are discussing ideas or in the midst of grand uh, psycho-religious dramas in a Dostoevskian sense or in a Conradian sense for that matter. The sort of brilliance of Sandler's planet in a way is that it's this man who's, who is as captivated and obsessed and animated by great ideas and who who equals the greatness of them in some sense, who is himself a, a genuine intellectual. And yet it's decay all around him. It's detritus and, and a kind of illness and deformity. And that works brilliantly in the novel. It can be quite cruel. You know, Bello, for everything he's saying about Mosby here, Bellow could be a very cruel writer. Um, I don't think it's uh, a moralizing judgment to say that about him. It was in his style uh, in some ways. And Samler's, Samler's Planet can be a very cruel novel, but it's that effect of it, the, 
this sort of juxtaposition of the great ideas, which are truly great, and this disordered society works to brilliant effect. Okay, but but so one thing that you say about this story that I don't agree with is you, know, you say you know lust lust garden is is truly pathetic, truly. Um, uh, uh, doesn't doesn't rise. It must be his rendition. Okay, it must be his rendition. But yeah, but there are gaps, right? There are things that um that are suggestive, right? And so, so like the, the yeah. kind of low point in terms of Mosby's cruelty is so Lustgarden has like had this car shipped over right. like is it was it like a Cadillac or something? I forget. Like basically, yeah, like, yeah. you can make a lot of money selling an American car. So his whole family gets together to get enough money to ship it over. Um, but right as it happens, like uh, the laws change, right? And then um, it's like a sort of kind of comedy of errors uh, that where this guy is just going to continually fail at his attempt to like make it in Europe. Um, and there's a point where his latest scheme has failed and now he's sleeping in his car, right? And Mosby passes him by. Mosby realized that compassion should be felt. The passing in the <laughs> night, the locked gleaming car, and seeing huddled lust garden sleeping covered with two coats on the majestic seat like Jonah inside Leviathan, Mosby could not say in candor what he experienced with sympathy, right? Um, and then later there's a line, a candidate for re- resurrection, an opportunity for the grace of life to reveal itself. But perhaps Mosby thought a man like lust garden would never, except with supernatural aid, exist in a suitable form. Right. Okay. So there's that. And then what is our last, but like our last image of, of lust garden after he's mostly disposed of him. Right. And he's, um, is he runs into him one more time in New York in an elevator. Right. Um, and, uh, must be, and he's like, you know, sort of catches up and, and asks him how he is. And he, and, uh, lust garden says, I'm great. Things are completely different. I'm happy, successful, married, children in New York. Wouldn't live in the U.S. again. It's god-awful, inhuman. I'm visiting, right? And then the last image of him is Lustgarden with a certain skinny dignity walking away. He himself seemed amused by his encounters with capitalism and socialism, right? Um, and so the, but the last bit, though, so, so Mo- yeah. Mosby is remarking on this, um, and he's sort of, so kind of sitting back and laughing, Right at at what must be the kind of like silliness and kind of preposterousness of of Les Gordon's supposedly successful life. Right. Well, he he, he, says, t- he did a description of his wife. Yeah, yeah. Well, he says yeah. the children. So he's picturing this, and he looks at a picture, and the wife's very ugly, and he says the children were young Klonskys. So this is the maiden name of the the wife. Les Gordon had the snapshots in his wallet of an, of North African leather. As he beamed, Mosby recognized that pride in his success was Les Gordon's opiate, his artificial paradise. Right. Right. He's like transparently projecting. Right. Like he's transparently like the first, you know, you you read that and it it doesn't it rings true for maybe half a second. Then you're like, hold on. Like, right. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, how do you know that this life of sort of domestic bliss is is just this this artificial paradise, this opiate. Right. And later he's. He's looking at one last thing. There's like he's this tool tree, and there's a sort of discourse on the religious traditions associated with it. Um, and and a, a Mosby says he had completed himself in this cogitating, unlaughing, stone, iron, nonsensical form. Having disposed of all things human, he should have encountered God. Would this occur? 
but having so disposed what God was there to encounter, right? Um, and that's that sort of like the cogitating, unlaughing, stone, iron, yeah. nonsensical form that disposes of all things human and therefore cannot encounter the divine, cannot encounter, you know, yeah. what what perhaps Lust Garden, even if in sort of fits and snatches, has encountered. Well, and it's also the, he's the anti-hero of Conrad's manifesto. Right. Yeah, right? Exactly. He's made himself a, a perfect armor. Um, mm-hmm. And unhumaned himself, and made himself totally unfit for art or or serious thought. I think I think Bella would even say, "Well, yeah, anti-solidaristic." I mean, just uh, uses his fellow human beings. Uh, I mean, that's part of what you realize with the the Cadillac. You know, this sort of comedy of errors with the Cadillac. One of the nice touches. Bellow uses as a writer and also a sort of nice uh, thing for the reader in in experiencing the story is that when you get towards the end of the story, you realize that some of what you had taken to be a stretch early on is a stretch because it's Mosby embellishing to heap it on to Lustgarten. So like the degree of patheticness that, you know, you as a reader, you're a bit incredulous when you first encounter it. Like, really? The day the Cadillac arrives, that's the day the law changes. You realize later, like, this is, you know, Mosby has this little voodoo doll and he's sticking pins in it because he thinks it'll make him more powerful to do so. Um, yeah. I mean, this is a, guys, this is a fairly didactic story. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. It it ha it has and it's not my favorite bellow that I've read. Um you gotta because read, it, say you should read Mr. Sandler's play. I, I it's a brilliant novel and the fact that the two are related, like Bellow uh, Sandler's Planet is not didactic. Yeah. But, but but this is because it's it's almost like ground clearing for what he thinks you ought to do or, or how you ought to be. Right. And, and I think because he, you know, he's teaching in the committee on social thought, like he's, his life is among, you know, he's writing for partisan reviews, hanging out with the New York intellectuals. Um, his life is among thinkers. His life's among like ideas, people. And I think he doesn't think that that is a way of being in the world that will be fruitful for you. Um, and the, the last line of the story is, ladies, I find it very hard to breathe. Um, and that takes place because he's gone down into this ancient crypt. Um, and it's just sort of part of the, the action of the story. He's, he's a tourist. He's going with a couple of British women. Um, but I, I think that uh, I think it's meant to resonate quite broadly, right? That this person can't breathe, right? That if you, if you kind of shut yourself up, in this prison of like ideas and, and self-defenses and, and self-regard that you won't be able to, you'll lose some vital contact with reality and with the world. But his ideas aren't even ideas. Finally, they're postures, no. they're gestures, they're opinions. That's true. That's true. And he, so the, he is a pathetic character because look, Mosby is not a genuine intellectual who has sacrificed a fulfilling personal life to, genuinely explore ideas he's a dilettante he's a minor dilettante mm. with delusions of grandeur okay, yeah, who's allowed this sort of desperate grasp you know listen you have the right like it's very burn after reading you know it's like this 
these pathetic characters who believe themselves to be engaged in some sort of grand historical enterprise, but are mm. bumbling fools who don't recognize. Listen, Burn After Reading is a film that gets better oh, oh. with every passing right. year. You know, it's like yeah. in its judgment, who are obsessed with their connection severe. to power, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes, That's yes. Right. One of the recurring so. lines is that he shook General Franco's hand. Um, you know, and then like right, when, at one shook point, General he, Franco, right, right, right. He, he, he like shake extends hand. his hand. He says, shake the hand that shook Franco's hand. Shook the hand so that shook this, the hand, yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah. There's this little there's this little passage um right before so those those parts that we've read about that the Phil read about um having disposed of all things human, countering God. He says uh, of course, you cannot make yourself an agreeable, desirable person. You can't will yourself into it without regard to the things to be done. Imperative tasks, imperative comprehensions, monstrous compulsions of duty which deform. Men will grow ugly under such necessities. This is this one a director of espionage, that one a killer. Um, what are we to make of that? Because I sort of read that as a rebuke of Mosby, maybe um, – you know, he's naive in thinking that to do a task, to throw yourself into something of actual constructive worth deforms you. Um, but that, that maybe the punchline is at his expense that like, because he dilettanted around and never threw himself into a constructive task, like raising a family the way that Lust Garden is or, or, or whatever, um, that he's actually failed to form. He's failed to become a person. I thought that was one of the most haunting passages in the piece because it's like genuinely mysterious in a way. So I also, I also sort of stuck on that one because I wasn't sure what to make of it, but I didn't read it in quite that way because, because of the first line, of course you cannot make yourself an agreeable, desirable person. Um, And this comes after he's been sort of evaluating these two Welsh women who are his travel companions on this little tour he's taking in Mexico. But he's saying you cannot will yourself into it. What's it? It is being somebody who other people want to be around. I mean, I read this right. as Mosby recognizing that he is a somebody other people don't especially want to be around. Uh, so I th- I think he's I think it's I think it's a, an evolving sort of flight of self justification. Hmm. Um, I think he's looking at how agreeable the Welsh women are and how just strong and kind of simple they are and how they're able to encounter all of these um, touristy things they're doing with with kind of energy and, and vigor. Um, and he says, you know, first he's saying you can't one can't make just make oneself into that. You you know you have to um, do things. You have to be throwing yourself at right. things. But then over the course of it, he's like. But it's terrible. Like right, it, right, it right, warps right, you. It makes yeah, you disgusting. Right, right, right. Like he's defending himself against his failure to. That's to the decent. literary brilliance of it, though. The literary brilliance of it, and this is Bello in this incredibly economical sort of. Uh, uh, it's not a stream of consciousness. It's an associative consciousness. Yeah. But right. so that's exactly right. So it, like. The leap is an associative leap. It's a subconscious leap. It's a pattern mm-hmm. of thought, right? Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. you inside of your own head and in this pattern of self-justification, you're like, well, look, if I, the reason why I don't have friends is because <laughs> in order to like be the sort of person who has friends, I would have to make these compromises. And what would those compromises entail? And like you start, when you start on what's a compromise, me. well, you're like, first you're like, 
the compromise. Oh, I couldn't be as serious and intellectual. And then a second later, you're like, and I'd have to be a torturer. I would, yeah. if I, if I began, if I began, like I would end up a, a, a deformed monstrous torturer. You know, it's this sort of grandiose self delusion, but Bello does a, you know, the sort of genius of it is that it, he explains nothing. It just moves sort of with the, the speed of thought and like you, mm-hmm. you feel it before yeah. you appreciate what it means. You know, too, we were talking about the, the sort of the falseness of nihilism, like the way in which it's actually kind of comforting because it, it doesn't strike to the core of us because it, it is, it sort of, um, it doesn't actually reflect reality. Right. And so, you know, Mosby's vision of human beings, right. I mean, would, um, the most peculiar, ingenious, hungry, aspiring, and heartbroken animal by calling himself man thinks he can escape being what he really is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the one of the things about this story is like when you're reading it, um, you're not until <laughs> until the line about the Germans. You're not necessarily sure how seriously to take him. A lot of his observations are really good, right? Or sharp, or have a a kind of interest to them. Um, And then, uh, you know, and some of the lines, you know, like the line about the birds, right? Um, That opens it. you know, you but have they add sort of, up to nothing, right? Like there's exactly, all these right. sharp ob- observations, all of these sharp judgments, and right. they amount to nothing. And they amount to a man trapped yeah. inside of a tomb who can't exactly. breathe and is afraid yeah. of his own shadow. It's like, oh, he's got the courage to like tell it like it really is, and and cut to the you know cut to the abyss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually, yeah, as you said, a tomb. Yeah, I mean, Bella was exercised about this in, in some other writings, um, this sort of supposed courage of reductionism, of just sort of winnowing our, our aspirations and our heroisms and our desires down to the basest, most animal uh, sort of subterfuge, right? That like really what we want is power and sex and 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 yeah, you wrote a lot dom- about this dominance and money, um, and all the sort of high high flown pieties are are just window you know fig leaves for that. He was he was pissed about that for a couple decades, I think. <laughs> that comes up again and again, and yeah. uh, it's in Herzog too. It's in Henderson, the Rain King, also. I thought these were fantastic pairings of readings. Actually, um, I really liked it. Uh, you know, the Mosby's memoirs it, at times it. Uh, at times the the style got a little bit much, but uh, when it was good, it was really, really good. Um, it's just yeah, a, so, the, yeah, it's just, there's a kind of pungency to it, you know, it just, it feels, yeah. it, you know, you, you got it well where it's like this, you know, he's in this kind of chain of associations and it, and it has a sort of surprise to it. And also just some of the descriptions. I love that it, there's a, like a, at one point he's describing a pianist who is, you know, working the keys with muscular boldness. Right. And you just, yeah, it's, yeah, right, right. it's fantastic. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I should we, it. so we've got, I'm seeing, hold on with We've got uh, six minutes. Um, should we, should we try to 
land somewhere on on the big Conradian thesis. Sure. Um, is that is that what one does here? Yeah, I, we do whatever you want, man. You lead we do, us. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Okay. You, you you steer the landing. What are you okay. going for? Okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so uh, I, I don't think that that the Bellow story. Um, sort of disqualifies Conrad, right? Like, and, and I don't think he had sort of conclusively confirms that Conrad is, is correct. I mean, Bello here, here's one interesting way to, to land it. Um, Bello thinks that this is a highly unfashionable way to think about art. Now um, he thinks that that's a problem. And he, he, he kind of styles himself as a sort of lonely defender of like, great old traditions and deep, deep humane things that have been kind of brushed aside. Um, I mean, where do we place, and again, I'm a sucker for this and, and I think I'm not nearly alone in being a sucker for this. And I actually think that, you know, among my students and I almost very often teach freshmen um, who, you know, are not, not at all influenced by current fashions, um, you know, intellectual or cultural fashions. Um, I feel like their instincts run that way as well towards literature being this, this house for, um, for discovering, you know, universal common human things. And, and that when it does land, right. When, when they are moved by it, that it's, it is with this great sort of romantic awakening and, um, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, maybe this, you know, we're just living in the hangover of, of, you know, this sort of long Western Christian tradition. And so they're just sort of, it's in the water for them. Um, but it does seem to be at least for them, something kind of intuitive and natural mm-hmm. and native. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Bella would say that he would say that this is just how we run and we we're able to obscure it and and it is widely obscured in our time and place uh, james woods argues that uh, this is one of the significances of bellow's career is that in the age of beckett he has retained the sole pungency of the 19th century novelists and the metaphysical leanings of the great russians um and one of the the ways that he says he does it is you know he talks about how like you know in becco beckett uh, bellow you don't have scenes where characters walk out of houses onto streets. They don't have dramatic conversations. It is almost impossible to find sentences in Bellow along the lines of, he put down his drink and left the room. That's because most Bellovian detail appears as memory in his novels, as scenes which are filtered through a remembering mind. So detail is modern in Bellow because it is always the impression of a detail, yet his details have an unmodern solidity. They are indeed true impressions. Mm. Um, And... uh, yeah, so I think that it does um, merge nicely with some of the 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 Conradian themes. I mean, it was Beck- Bello said that uh, you know the the novel is a, a latter day lean to a hovel in which the spirit takes shelter, right? Which is a nice. I always like that image of of what the novel can do. Well, and both Bello and Conrad, I think, would say that we then in our literary and intellectual culture, we're we're off course right now. Um, and for various, you know, on account of various sort of embarrassments and, um, resentments and, and, um, disappointments, we, we kind of don't do the grand thing. Um, and we don't do what we could do. Do the grand thing. Yeah. Do the grand thing, but 
with the inflection of do the damn thing, do the grand <laughs> thing, you know, do the grand <laughs> thing. <laughs> I, uh, I, I am now regretting some of my earlier, uh, negativity towards Conrad because I do fundamentally sympathize with the view of art as a moral duty to tell the truth in order so that it reach other human beings who are alive as you are. Mm. I, I mm -hmm. do find that to be inescapably and irreducibly the only true purpose uh, of art. I only meant in the Conrad to question some of the execution, and perhaps a bit of the sort of uh, the, the grandiosity of his particular statement of it but um but i i've i feel that that uh that that is true that i don't i don't think that like um i don't know in part it's the there's the sort of moral value to like the the idea that the art unites people in some sort of positive communion um feels to me to have that sort of weirdly post-Christian afterglow where it's like mm. not clear where the aesthetic well, that's, ends. That's why, that's why I we like... We are the world, we are the children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, in a... Yeah, yes. Right. That's why I like when, when, when Bello reiterates the, the Conradian theme, he insists on the soul, right? The novel is the lean-to for the soul, um, which I like. Well, I think that with... Uh, Jake suitably chastened uh, for mm. his overly critical comments about Conrad. That might be a good. There's a uh, whole redemptive arc to the episode, I, guys. I think so. Yeah, I was I was worried the about buildings him. Roman for Jake Siegel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I make no progress. Yeah. Yeah. Back into the cycle we exactly go. Exactly <laughs> where I started. Well, this has been a absolute pleasure. Um, anything? Yeah, anything guys. you want to plug? Um, uh, moving forward, uh, and we'll put the links to your conversation uh, oh, about with in the show notes. I'm trying to write a book about this stuff. Um, I'm I'm wrapping up a proposal, uh, working with a very fine agent. I think um, if anyone feels like publishing a book on uh, solitude and solidarity and literature and death and all that, uh, you know, you know where to find me. All right. Yeah, I. I very, very much look forward to reading that. It's um, going to be fantastic. I have no doubt about it. Thank you, Ian. It's great to have you on, man. Gentlemen, it's, you. A, it's the best podcast going, I think, okay? And I, it's a great honor to have been able to speak to you guys. We appreciate that. You were, uh, you were a terrific guest and had right, a lot of insight to share. So may you continue to be a person but not too – much of a person, you know, like don't, don't get ahead of yourself. Is all yeah. I'm trying to say, just be a person. That's it. You know what I mean? Not, good enough. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night, guys. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>